This is a 980 CKNW podcast. You are live with the App Show. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. We have got a great program today. We're actually down uh, live in Las Vegas at the Amazon Re-Mars conference. And this is the first time that I've ever been to this, uh, this show, John. I mean, we always go to the Consumer Electronics Show. You know, that's a nerd heaven. I think this just took it up a level for me. It's got space. It really does. So I think when most of us think of Amazon, we think about Amazon.ca or .com. It's where we go and buy all our stuff and we get it the next day, which is amazing. Um, they also have Amazon Prime Video that you know I think a lot of people are familiar with. So yeah, obviously that's a big chunk of their business. But along the way, as they grew Amazon.com, and got into streaming video and, and what have you, they had this huge other part of their business, uh, Amazon Web Services, that kind of sprouted out of all of that and now is enormous. They host most of the world's major websites. They're in government and, and business, helping them with robotics, machine learning, cloud services. It's it's huge. And so this conference is bringing all these people together, like NASA and Lockheed Martin, Intel, like every major tech company and aerospace company and robotic company you can think of. And that's, again, what uh, the, the Mars conference stands for. It's not Mars the planet, but machine learning, autonomy, robots, and space. Yeah, the RE is from uh, from a, a, an email, I think, from Jeff Bezos to other people that he wanted to bring together. And it's like, so this is regarding um, RE, uh Robotics, yeah, space, automation. Although I've also heard people refer to it as analytics. Yes. Uh, so, but then also uh, uh, machine learning, and just all those things. There's so much crossover with all of them, and so we've been learning all about how this type of technology is so important for things like space exploration, space yeah. travel, uh, but also. Robotics, self-driving cars, you name it, they're involved in it. So what's really become interesting now, John, is that, for example, in space and space exploration, you know, in the past, that could only be done by well-off governments, right? Yeah. Like, so you've got NASA, who basically was responsible for getting all the people together and designing the rockets and the rovers and space stations. But now... Companies can specialize in certain areas of that of those fields. Like maybe they're just good at making rockets or screens or the computers that go in the satellites. And so that's what this type of conference is all about. It's bringing these people together. And it's, it's fascinating because we were like at one of the cocktail receptions one night. And the people were meeting like, oh, yeah, I used to be at NASA. I used to be at Space Force. And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> we need to talk to you. Yeah. And now they're at Amazon. I'm like. How is Amazon getting like NASA people and Lockheed Martin people? But it they're all it's all kind of working together. And the guy we're going to be talking to on the show today, it's just a fascinating story. Like you know, in in the U.S. military, you know, for close to forty years, and he was one of the guys that helped get Space Force going, and which would, which I thought was a joke when I first heard about Space Force. I thought it was a joke, but it really isn't. And it all we also find out. He was involved in GPS. I know. Like he's got such this amazing history. So it's it's interesting, like, how all these technologies are combining. Um, and just even things like the satellites. And we'll be talking about that. Like, 
how important that all is and how the technologies are working to to get computing power up there so that they can do all this analysis of data that they're getting and deliver it in real time. So everything from tracking wildfires to climate change, like you name it, they can they can figure that out. So it, it's pretty cool. But it, you know, it's been an interesting journey down, John. Yes. I, I think last week we talked about uh, you know the roaming eSIM. Yes. Yes. And uh, I forget the name of the company again. What is it? Air Allo. Air Allo. Air Allo. A I R A L O. And so this is uh, uh, an eSIM card, an electronic SIM card that'll work in a lot of the newer phones, like iPhone 11s and up, and a lot of the the newer Android phones. So you'll have like a regular SIM card, but there's also a digital one that you can kind of load in. Yeah. And so I bought a 30-day plan because I'm coming back in a few weeks to the U.S. And I think it's $15 Yeah, for like 30 gigs or something, which is insane. But anyway, how did you find the installation and, and working it? Uh, it went fine. Uh, when we landed, though, I, like I, I had pre-set it all up at home. Yeah. Um, but it's not activated until you're actually on that carrier network. Yeah. Because even at home, the service does work potentially in, in Canada. Yeah. Uh, you can get a specific Canadian plan, which you know may or may not be cheaper than yeah a pay as you go or something like that. But um, it's interesting to see which like it it unlike a normal SIM card, you're kind of locked to that one carrier. Yeah, this eSIM can jump around depending on what's nearest to you and what providers they have, what deals they have, that kind of thing. Because I've seen all kinds of different uh, carriers pop up, uh, and it's kind of neat. What at least on my iPhone, it shows you two rows of carrier signal and then when you when you pull down from the top you can actually see Rogers tell us you know those types of things down here we're getting T-Mobile AT&T yeah that type of thing so I, I had a few kinks with it I mean it was pretty easy like you download the app you pick your plan and then it'll install itself yeah so that went pretty well um, I had a few hiccups when I did land um, just making sure that you know, that I did have it turned on, for example. And then, like, iMessage was a little wonky, but I had to reboot the phone and then... I just rebooted uh, when we were taxiing in and, yeah. and everything just worked. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the um, uh, the the installation um, is pretty straightforward. Um, the plan choices are great. You can use your uh, Apple Pay on, on your iPhone to pay for it. Um you go into the app itself and it'll show you what your usage is like very quickly, very instantly. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually surprised. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of Wi-Fi here as you might imagine. And so I haven't actually had to use a lot of it, a lot of my data. So yeah, it's, it's been good. So overall air LO. Yeah. Uh, it's an app that has these really cheap roaming plans for everywhere. The global. Yeah. And it, they're mostly data ones, but that's good enough, right? Yeah. And it is not 5g. No. It's just LTE, which, which for is, most people is fine. fine. So we, when we got here, we're staying in uh, the Aria Hotel, and you were all excited because you signed up to get a digital key. Yeah. And it, just you didn't have to check in because no, you checked in on the phone. Well, we literally walked into the into the hotel, and I got a notification. I guess it detected I was in the hotel. It says, hey, your room's ready. Click here for your digital key. I'm like, okay, see ya. I don't even need to go to the lobby. And so I didn't get that. So I had to go to the front desk. And I didn't want a key out. I wanted a digital key. And so I asked the guy, well, cool, I'm checking in now. And I had to give my credit card again and everything. I'm like, can, can I get a digital key? He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> didn't have the technology to do that. But 
then yours didn't work. Well, no, because I unfortunately didn't act, finish activating it in the lobby when I had a good connection. Oh, no. And the here, the all the elevators, you can only go to your floor with a key. I just knew which floor I was going to. I just followed a group of people that were going to the same floor. Oh, okay. Because there were a bunch of conference people already here. and But then back in my room, the key does does work. Oh, it does? It does. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so every time you use it, it works? Yep. See, I like that because, as always, I always get somehow the room the furthest from the elevator. And in Las Vegas, that's a mile. Yeah. And so there's been a couple times. One night, as always, you have a few drinks. I forgot my key. And so then, you know, you get to your room. Isn't that frustrating? You get to your room after walking eight miles from the elevator. (laughs) And you're like, oh, sweet. Oh, God, I have to walk down to the the lobby again uh, to get a new key. And then today, my key didn't work. Right. So I had to go back down to the lobby. So it would have been just nice to have it on my phone. Yeah. But I guess you got to worry if your phone dies. But then I guess you can go to the lobby and get a key. (laughs) Okay. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about... uh, Amazon in space and how Space Force was founded back after this. We're in Las Vegas talking all about uh, technology, everything from space to robots, machine learning, automation at the Amazon Re Mars conference. It's pretty amazing stuff here. It's just fascinating how many nerds are here and how many cool things are being talked about here. Well, we found another nerd, and this is like a super interesting nerd. His name is Clint Crozier. He is with uh, Amazon and actually a uh, retired Air Force slash Space Force Major General. Uh, We ran into uh, Clint at a cocktail reception and had the best conversation uh, ever. Thanks for joining us, Clint. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I don't even know where to begin. Uh, like, what is your role at Amazon now? So I run our global space business for AWS. So Amazon supports uh, missionaries from healthcare to transportation to government services and high tech and everything in between. And the, the team that I lead that I have such a privilege of leading is about two years ago. Amazon recognized that although we've been supporting the space industry, at NASA in particular for a decade, we were doing so in small pockets with different people in different places without really a central focus. And we recognized that space was growing so rapidly, right? Whether you talk about the three times the number of satellites will launch in 2022, then launched in 2018, or you talk about the space industry going from a $425 billion global enterprise to a $1 trillion global enterprise by 2040, it's growing so fast. We saw the value in creating a dedicated team to pull space experts together from across AWS and outside so that we could put a team together with a deep knowledge and understanding of the space environment. Me, 35 years flying satellites and launching rockets. And when you couple that deep space experience with our deep cloud experience, we're able to sit down with customers and unlock some tremendous innovation opportunities leveraging space and cloud together to push us forward into the future. So you're in charge of getting packages to the moon and next day. Well, uh, so uh, I hope that we'll get there one of these days, right? Yeah. That sounds like a pretty good goal. You know, AWS is all about audacious goals. And if our customers have a requirement to get a package on the moon in 24 hours, we'll, we'll take it on. We'll figure out how to do it. <laughs> well, um, before we get into some of the, the, the cool stuff that's under your purview, um, I found it really interesting that you were with Space Force. And I, I have to be honest, when we heard about Space Force in Canada when it was announced, we thought it was crazy, like a, a joke, but something that um, 
the president just kind of came up with on a whim. But no, it's no. been going for a long time. No. So so I've been in the space business. I came on active duty in the U.S. Air Force in 1988, right? So it's been a few years now. And I've been a space operator my whole career. I commanded the squadron that operates the global GPS uh, satellite constellation. So we all use GPS in our lives probably almost every day. Sorry, what did you do for that? You were uh, in charge of I, I was the commander of yeah. the squadron that operates the global GPS satellite constellation. That's how we get uh, Apple Maps of and course, Google Maps. Of course. So, it came from the military. That's right. Yeah. And, and a lot of people don't know that. And so every day... So you're responsible for my Apple Maps not getting me to the right... No, level. I'm no. responsible. <laughs> Apple's responsible what, what they do with the software. Software, but we're responsible for putting the global signal out that, that other people yeah. build applications on. So my job was to walk in every day and, and make sure that we had the tools, the capabilities, the people, the training, the resources to, to operate the GPS constellation. And yes, I got to send a few commands to GPS satellites over the couple of years I was in command there. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, but, but so going back to my point, space has been critically important in the military and our civil society since I was a young lieutenant. Yeah. And so over my 35 years in the space industry, about every seven or eight years, this idea that has space grown to the point that it needs to come out from the U.S. Air Force and, and become its own service so that it can advocate for its own budget, its own resources, its own priorities, or is it best served being tucked under the Air Force like it had been? And the best example I can give you is I spent 33 years in the U.S. Air Force. You know, the U.S. Air Force was the Army Air Corps prior to 1947, right? So what we know is the Air Force today was part of the U.S. Army. And the same debate happened in the 30s and 40s. Has the Air Force become so important, so capable, so necessary that it needs to have its own branch, its own service, advocate for its own resources, build its own capabilities, or is it best served? continuing to be subordinate to the U.S. Army. And in 1947, Congress and the President and the DOD agreed it was time to move the Air Force out of the Army, and the Air Force was born in September of 1947. That was 72 years ago. The debate has been exactly the same about three different times during my career. Every seven or eight years, it would bubble up again. Have we gotten to the point where the space uh, mission is so important, so large, so vast, that it needs its own service, and it ebbed and flowed three or four different times during my career. Uh, and uh, so about three years ago, the, the debate came up again for some really good reasons. We were reaching peak capacity and, and the critical nature of what we needed to do in space. And it got to the president, President Trump at the time, and he saw the argument and he weighed the pros and cons and he said, it's time. And, and so it, it, you know, I give the president a lot of credit for recognizing it. And he, he drove it, right? He, he drove it through Congress. I testified before Congress to convince him we needed to do it, but but um, I give him a lot of credit. But this is an idea that's been in the making for 30 years and has precedent with the Air Force coming out of the Army. So uh, uh, I'm very proud that I was uh, considered the lead architect and uh, the lead planner for the stand with the U.S. Space Force. But what I also am really proud about in terms of uh, the political aspect, we had bipartisan support. Right. It, th there was near unanimous support in both parties, Democrat and Republic, and both houses, uh, uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate. So that just shows you, even though not everybody in Congress might have been predisposed to support President Trump on something, it just shows the merit of the idea itself that it was nearly unanimously approved, both parties, both houses, as the right thing to do for space and the U.S. Space Force being created. You've been in the military a long time. Why, why did you leave? Like, why come to Amazon? Yeah. 
Well, you know, there comes a time in your life. I had 33 years on active duty, and, you know, I love serving our country, being uh, uh, bigger than uh, something bigger than me. And, and I've worked a number of years with uh, very professional members of the Canadian military, and they, they feel the same way. So it's a service that I felt called to for a long time. But you get to the point where you're tired of moving every two or three years, uprooting your family, going to a new job, going to a new place. And it was just time for my wife and I to settle down and spend a little bit more time with the grandkids uh, in a single place. But what was tremendous is as soon as I announced my retirement, AWS contacted me and, and they said, hey, we, we know that you're not a comm guy. We know that you don't have cloud experience. But we think the space industry is growing so rapidly and it can so uniquely uh, uh, find value in leveraging the cloud. We would like you to consider come starting a space business for us. And, and that's all I needed to hurt. Amazon, the creativity, the innovation, uh, the, the global brand name recognition of Amazon coupled with going fast, uh, leading, world leading technology and trying to drive new innovation into the space industry. Uh, I was hooked. I'm all in. We're talking with uh, Clint Crozier. He's uh, the man over at Amazon helping them uh, get into space business. We're going to have to take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll explore a little bit more what they're doing uh, with all the technologies and uh, bringing all these companies together and how that makes that faster and cheaper. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Course Radio Network. Back after this. You're live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. We're in Las Vegas talking all about uh, technology, everything from space to robots, machine learning, automation, at the Amazon Re-Mars conference. It's pretty amazing stuff here. Uh, it's just fascinating how many nerds are here and how many cool things are being talked about here. Well, we found another nerd, and this is like a super interesting nerd. His name is Clint Crozier. He is with uh, Amazon and actually a uh, retired... Air Force slash Space Force Major General. Uh, we ran into uh, Clint at a cocktail reception and had the best conversation uh, ever. Thanks for joining us, Clint. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, like, what is your role at Amazon now? So I run our global space business for AWS. So Amazon supports uh, missionaries from healthcare to transportation to government services and high tech and everything in between. And the, the team that I lead, that I have such a privilege of leading, is about two years ago, Amazon recognized that although we've been supporting the space industry, NASA in particular, for a decade, we were doing so in small pockets with different people in different places without really a central focus. And we recognized that space was growing so rapidly, right? Whether you talk about the three times the number of satellites will launch in 2022 then launched in 2018, or you talk about the space industry going from a $425 billion global enterprise to a $1 trillion global enterprise by 2040. It's growing so fast. We saw the value in creating a dedicated team to pull space experts together from across AWS and outside so that we could put a team together with a deep knowledge and understanding of the space environment. Me, 35 years flying satellites and launching rockets. And when you couple that deep space experience with our deep cloud experience, we're able to sit down with customers and unlock some tremendous innovation opportunities, leveraging space and cloud together to push us forward into the future. So you're in charge of getting packages to the moon and 
next day. Well, uh, so uh, I hope that we'll get there one of these days, right? Yeah. That sounds like a pretty good goal. You know, AWS is all about audacious goals. And if our customers have a requirement to get a package on the moon in 24 hours, we'll, we'll take it on. We'll figure out how to do it. <laughs> well, um, before we get into some of the, the, the cool stuff that's under your purview, um, I found it really interesting that you were with Space Force. And I, I have to be honest, when we heard about Space Force in Canada when it was announced, we thought it was crazy, like a, a joke, but something that um, the president just kind of came up with on a whim. But no, it's no. been going for a long time. No. So so I've been in the space business. I came on active duty in the U.S. Air Force in 1988, right? So it's been a few years now. And I've been a space operator my whole career. I commanded the squadron that operates the global GPS uh, satellite constellation. So we all use GPS in our lives probably almost every day. Sorry, what did you do for that? You were uh, in charge of I, I was the commander of yeah. the squadron that operates the global GPS satellite constellation. That's how we get uh, Apple Maps of and course, Google Maps. Of course. So, it came from the military. That's right. Yeah. And, and a lot of people don't know that. And so every day... So you're responsible for my Apple Maps not getting me to the right... No, level. I'm responsible. <laughs> Apple's responsible what, what they do with the software. But we're responsible for putting the global signal out that, that other people yeah. build applications on. So my job was to walk in every day and, and make sure that we had the tools, the capabilities, the people, the training, the resources to, to operate the GPS constellation. And yes, I got to send a few commands to GPS satellites over the couple of years I was in command there. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, but, but so going back to my point, space has been critically important in the military and our civil society since I was a young lieutenant. Yeah. And so over my 35 years in the space industry, about every seven or eight years, this idea that has space grown to the point that it needs to come out from the U.S. Air Force and, and become its own service so that it can advocate for its own budget, its own resources, its own priorities, or is it best served being tucked under the Air Force like it had been? And the best example I can give you is I spent 33 years in the U.S. Air Force. You know, the U.S. Air Force was the Army Air Corps prior to 1947, right? So what we know is the Air Force today was part of the U.S. Army. And the same debate happened in the 30s and 40s. Has the Air Force become so important, so capable, so necessary that it needs to have its own branch, its own service, advocate for its own resources, build its own capabilities, or is it best served continuing to be subordinate to the U.S. Army. And in 1947, Congress and the President and the DOD agreed it was time to move the Air Force out of the Army, and the Air Force was born in September of 1947. That was 72 years ago. The debate has been exactly the same about three different times during my career. Every seven or eight years, it would bubble up again. Have we gotten to the point where the space uh, mission is so important, so large, so vast, that it needs its own service, and it ebbed and flowed three or four different times during my career. Uh, and uh, so about three years ago, the, the debate came up again for some really good reasons. We were reaching peak capacity and, and the critical nature of what we needed to do in space. And it got to the president, President Trump at the time, and he saw the argument and he weighed the pros and cons and he said, it's time. And, and so it, it, you know, I give the president a lot of credit for recognizing it. And he, he drove it, right? He, he drove it through Congress. I testified before Congress to convince him we needed to do it, but but um, I give him a lot of credit. But this is an idea that's been in the making for 30 years and has precedent with the Air Force coming out of the Army. So uh, uh, I'm very proud that I was uh, considered the lead architect and the, the lead planner for the stand with the U.S. Space Force. But what I also am really proud about in terms of uh, the political aspect, we had bipartisan support. 
right? There was near unanimous support in both parties, Democrat and Republic, and both houses, uh, uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate. So that just shows you, even though not everybody in Congress might have been predisposed to support President Trump on something, it just shows the merit of the idea itself, that it was nearly unanimously approved, both parties, both houses, as the right thing to do for space and the U.S. Space Force being created. You've been in the military a long time. Why, why did you leave? Like, why come to Amazon? Yeah. Well, you know, there comes a time in your life. I had 33 years on active duty, and, you know, I love serving our country, being uh, uh, bigger than uh, something bigger than me. And, and I've worked a number of years with uh, very professional members of the Canadian military, and they, they feel the same way. So it's a service that I felt called to for a long time. But you get to the point where you're tired of moving every two or three years, uprooting your family, going to a new job, going to a new place. And it was just time for my wife and I to settle down and spend a little bit more time with the grandkids uh, in a single place. But what was tremendous is as soon as I announced my retirement, AWS contacted me and, and they said, hey, we, we know that you're not a comm guy. We know that you don't have cloud experience. But we think the space industry is growing so rapidly and it can so uniquely uh, uh, find value in leveraging the cloud. We would like you to consider come starting a space business for us. And, and that's all I needed to hurt. Amazon, the creativity, the innovation, uh, the, the global brand name recognition of Amazon coupled with going fast, uh, leading, world leading technology and trying to drive new innovation into the space industry. Uh, I was hooked. I'm all in. We're talking with uh, Clint Crozier. He's uh, the man over at Amazon helping them uh, get into space business. We're going to have to take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll explore a little bit more what they're doing uh, with all the technologies and uh, bringing all these companies together and how that makes that faster and cheaper. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Course Radio Network. Back after this. We're back with the program. Mike and John here. We got Clint Crozier from Amazon talking uh, all about space and what's happening next. Uh, how does wh what you guys are doing up there help people back on Earth now? Like, obviously, you want to get people to the Moon and Mars, but like, how how can it help mankind yeah. now here? You know, that's really that's really really exciting too because what we're seeing is the technologies that are being developed to to explore outer space are some of the same technologies that help us here on Earth. We like to say one of our lines of effort here at Amazon Web Services is making the world a better place from space, right? And so when we look at that mission set, and it surprises a lot of people, but I'll give you a few examples. We've got a company uh, out of Australia that we support called EXI, uh, E-X-C-I. EXI is uh, analyzing two and a half million images a day from space of remote areas in Australia to identify the ignition of bushfires within three minutes of ignition and then report those within three minutes of ignition and think about the difference between sending crews out to a remote area to put out a fire within minutes or hours of ignition and not knowing about it for two or three days in remote areas and the damage it can cause. And that's being done from space. That's incredible. We work with a company, Gatehouse Maritime, out of uh, UK, out of uh, London. And they are using space and satellite data to track endangered whales with the mission of reporting to uh, shipping channels and shipping authorities when endangered whales are migrating into their shipping uh, lanes wow. to keep endangered whales safe. Think about that. 
we work with a company called Digital Earth Africa out of Africa, and, and they're focused on food security. So they're using hyperspectral imagery, space imagery, space data. They're using it to analyze crop development across the African continent. And with hyperspectral analysis, you can tell where a crop isn't getting enough water, whether it's getting too much water, you can tell where crops are receding. You can identify past invasions into crop areas. And so they're doing all this. And when they run it on AWS, they tell us they can make those crop forecast predictions 800% faster on AWS than they could do on their own on-premises capabilities. And they're using that to help position food relief uh, uh, forces around Africa to make sure that people are getting enough food. So the ways we're using space data today from food security to climate uh, monitoring, uh, there's another company out of the UK, uh, Satellite View, who's using space data to identify thermal emissions from man-made objects here on the Earth to help manage climate change. So the use cases are almost endless from oil and gas uh, pipeline monitoring to uh, environmental monitoring. The insurance industry is using a lot of space data today. And those are all the ways space is making life better, adding to one of the ones that's been key for a long time that many people don't know, and that goes back to GPS. Do you know that in the U.S. and Canada, both, you can't get money out of the ATM machine without GPS. You can't get gas in your car without GPS. You can't do an international banking transfer without GPS because most people think of GPS as a navigation tool, and it is. But what guides that navigation uh, tool is a universal timing signal. And GPS regulates most of the world's timing signal standards. And so when you run your ATM or the gas station, it gives you a little time stamp on that transaction. That all comes from GPS. And if GPS were down, that system would, would come to a crashing halt. Is that why my gas is so expensive right now? Well, I don't think it has anything to do with the price because last I checked, G GPS is fully operational uh, and it continues to be. So, But that's fascinating, right? That's how we use space today in ways that people don't even realize in many ways that we're seeing that people are realizing as they talked about climate control, maritime safety, wildlife management, etc. So I'm filling up with gas. It's going to space. Um, I guess you could make that linkage, yeah. right? Space certainly helps support you put gas in your gas tank. No question about that. Can you still call it the cloud if it's in space? <laughs> well, now that's a really good one. All right. So it's a nebula. Yeah, yeah, so so we'll have to come up with some names, I think. So so here's when, when wait, you wait, space cloud. Space cloud. <laughs> yeah. I love that. So so let's talk about the space cloud for a moment. Uh, we were talking on the break and we are really excited that we're making an announcement this week here at Remars. And this will be, by the way, as I'm about to announce this, this will be the first time ever on Canadian Airways. How's that? First okay. first time ever. Um, we are formally announcing this week at Remars that we have taken a uh, cloud computing device called a snow cone. It's an edge computing device. So everybody needs cloud, everybody wants cloud, AIML, artificial intelligence, analytics, all the things cloud could do. People are learning more and more about how to leverage the cloud for all sorts of business and commercial and, and life-sustaining purposes here on Earth. But at AWS, we've got a great track record over the last couple of years of pushing the cloud further and further to the edge where users need it. 
It saves users a lot of time, money, bandwidth latency if we push the cloud to the data instead of you as a customer having to push your data to the cloud. It's better for you in many, many ways. So we've been pushing the cloud closer and closer. And if you think about a remote oil and gas pipeline out in the Canadian tundra or out in the Gulf of Mexico in the US, that's an edge location, rugged, disconnected, mobile in some cases, and they need cloud too. So we came up with these edge cloud computing devices. Well, after 35 years in the space business, I can tell you there's no more rugged, remote, or disconnected environment than in space. And with all the growth we're seeing in the space uh, sector and all the new missions that are coming from asteroid binding to on-orbit satellite servicing and repair, which never could be done in my era, um, all of those require that you push the cloud further, closer to the users, and our users happen to be in space. So we're announcing that we teamed with uh, Axiom Space and NASA, and back in April, we launched a AWS Edge Computing Snow Cone that does edge compute storage and data analytics. We launched it on Axiom's inaugural mission, AX-1. They flew it to the International Space Station. We installed it on the ISS, and we have been using it to run sophisticated machine learning models inside the International Space Station to help document the 25 experiments the Axiom astronauts have been executing on the space station. So right now today, for the first time in AWS history, we have a general purpose edge compute storage and analytical device on orbit in space on the International Space Station. So I mean, it's essentially, it's, it's a high powered computer. No, well, uh, a little bit different than a high-powered computer in that you have high-powered computers everywhere. Yes. But they don't run AIML, Advanced Data Analytics, and they can't connect back to the, yes. okay. the master cloud and the yeah. main cloud to translate data. For instance, the value of edge computing is even if you're disconnected, this snow cone box, 14 terabytes of storage, that's really big, uh, it can continue to do those cloud computing operations, edge computing, even disconnected from the cloud. Yep. But when they come into contact with the cloud, what's really exciting is we can do things like we loaded a machine learning model to do object identification for these experiments in the International Space Station. To find the aliens. Well, uh, I can't talk about those okay. things. <laughs> but, but whatever that mission was, let's say we had a completely different mission. We want to analyze scientific data for medical research. We could simply build a new model on the Earth upload it to the edge computing device in space and run the brand new model on this edge computing device. So we've really extended and pushed the cloud into space. And that's going to open a whole new era of space innovation as you're pushing the boundaries of what we can accomplish in space. We're talking with Clint Crozier. He's the man over at Amazon making all the space dreams come true for all of us. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us today. This was fascinating. My and, pleasure. And it's just not enough time. We'll have to have you on again. My pleasure. I'd be happy to do that. Thanks very much for having me. We're going to have to take another break. When we come back, more Tech to Talk. Stay tuned. You are back with the program. Mike Agarbo here with John Bueller. Don't forget to hit our website, getconnectedmedia.com. We've got some uh, great stuff happening up there. Lots of uh, how-to videos, the latest uh, tech reviews, and our podcast for both our shows, The App Show and Get Connected, up on the Listen tab. John, I don't know if you saw this story. Uh, experts are warning about uh, China spying on Americans through their coffee makers. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no decaf for you. Well, everything's becoming smart now, right? Yeah. They're connected to the internet, so... As you know, many of these devices, they're manufactured in China. So I don't know if this is like just paranoia run rampant. 
It sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, but apparently these experts, I don't know who the, what makes them an expert. Who knows? Um, they're saying that Chinese companies are collecting data about, I guess. How many coffees you have? Yeah. I, I don't know what they're really going to get from that. It, these devices, they're all like, it's called the internet of things. Like they're all connected to the internet. So some of them, you know, if they're taking payment information or something like that, I could see. I'm trying to think what kind of coffee makers would you have that, what kind of, what kind of information other than like a schedule or maybe types of coffees, you know, like I'm thinking like the Keurigs and the Nespresso's of, of the world out there, but like just a regular coffee maker, what else would you make smart about it? I don't know. I, I <laughs> <laughs> but again, John, everything's smart now, right? Yeah. So light switches and a lot of them are made in foreign countries, not just China. No. No. So beware. <laughs> beware of the smart coffee makers. <laughs> Unplug that coffee maker now. <laughs> they know how much decaf uh, you are drinking. Uh, I want to thank all the folks that helped put the show together. Uh, of course, John Beeler, uh, my co-host and producer, and uh, Robin back at the, the studio. We will see you again next time. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.